0: Our reading for today is from Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Such a cheery scripture reading to start our Sunday. (laughs) And then there was that awkward moment where I didn't come out for a while. (laughs) The reason is because we're going to talk about hypocrisy this morning and Cody and I had a conversation about whether or not we should just have 45 minutes of silence because we couldn't find anybody on the staff at this church who wasn't a hypocrite who could preach on this passage. But then we remembered that there's something in the Bible about grace and being forgiven and how that's manifested in so many different ways and said so Cody said you do it. (laughs) So that's why I'm up here. Today we are talking about generosity and hypocrisy kind of comparing the two but really we're going to spend most of our time talking about hypocrisy and trying to unpack this very difficult passage of Scripture. this is a challenging passage. We had this conversation at the Preaching Collective a couple weeks ago. All the pastors from Redemption Church, all 10 of them were there, and we had this conversation. Many of the um, spiritual formation pastors were there too, like Cody. And, and this is a challenging passage even for a pastor to get up and preach because um, we understand, we, we've experienced this, and this is just, there's some tension here as pastors, um, many in the church see pastors as something that we are not, that somehow we're void of sin and treachery. And then we get lauded for our gifts, which is very common, and the more we hear some of that stuff, the, the, the more we begin to believe it ourselves, and that creates trouble, doesn't it? Okay? Okay. There's a um, woman who usually sits right in the middle there during this first service. Some of you know her. Her name is Marcy Moberg. Um, she's, she's not been able to come to church lately. She's been taking some medication that makes her dizzy and she can't drive. And, and, uh, but Marcy and I have known each other a long, long time. And Marcy has told me for about 15 years now that God has gifted her in a very special way. Her spiritual gift is specifically to keep me humble and remind me of what an oaf I am. (laughs) And she's also said that if she ever reaches a point where she cannot do her ministry, which has been charged to her by God, that she will be the one who takes applications from you all to take her place. And I know that's going to be a very long line, so she's going to be very busy in the midst of all of that. Four weeks ago, we defined generosity, if you remember, maybe it was five weeks ago, in the midst of chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The word generosity in the Greek literally means a heart that is undivided, a heart that is unifocused. In other words, it has one, one focus. And we talked about how sin divides the heart. That's what sin does to us. It divides the heart. It fragments the heart. Our hearts are not whole. Our hearts are not the way God intended them in creation. This is what happened in Genesis 3, and it's been happening ever since because that original sin gets imputed to all of us. In other words, we are all born into this condition. I know there are many people who believe that we're born with a clean slate and then we mess it up. We're born already in trouble. We are conceived in sin, Scripture tells us. And yet, Jesus comes along and the gospel unites our heart it takes this broken heart and it puts it back together. And we, we realize that it's not perfect yet. There's that tension. Some of you have heard this before. Um, and if this is new to you, I would encourage you just to look it up and, and study it. But there's that tension of the already and not yet. The already meaning that we are saved. Those of us who are in this room who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are as assured of heaven as the saints who are already there. Nothing can take us from the grasp of God. That that must be understood by us. But but there's also the not yet, that that understanding that we live in this corrupt world, this very difficult world, and, and even our hearts, even in the gospel, are still pulled in different directions. And sometimes we can convince ourselves that it's the Holy Spirit pulling us in the wrong direction when it's really not, and it gets very very dicey. And we recognize that we struggle even as believers. Paul, the Apostle Paul, super Christian Paul, talks about this himself in Romans chapter 7, when he says things like, uh, the things that I want to do, I don't do those things. And then the things that I don't want to do, those are the very things that I find myself doing. Has anybody in this room experienced that? And that would be everybody in this room. So we have this tension of the already, but not yet. We we have victory, and we are called to live in victory, and that's good news. But the not yet is that we're still in the midst of this very dark and corrupt generation, the Bible calls it, or era, or world, and it's hard. But Jesus has the power, and, 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 and the filling of the Holy Spirit has the power to unfragment our heart, to... Give us a heart of integrity, of wholeness. And so what we're looking at today is the difference between generosity, a heart that is that is focused, and, and a heart that is broken and, and, and divided. And that's what hypocrisy is. Here's the definition that we're going to use for hypocrisy. It's making yourself appear as though you are something that you are not, or making it appear that you are doing something you really aren't doing. And that is true. Both of those are true of Ananias and Sapphira. They did both of those things. And and we all wrestle with this as well. Theirs is just a little bit more public than most of ours. I hope you understand that. Theirs is just a little bit more public than ours. So chapter 4 so far is all about how the church came under fire and was treated unjustly by the outside, by people on the outside. These verses today show us that not everything inside the church was perfect either. This is one of the great practical reasons that I find the Bible trustworthy. I want you to, I want you to hear this. Okay? In this case, Luke does not present pure propaganda of some ideal church. In other words, today we see the church not just in her glory, but also in her sinful ugliness. And yet Christ still loves us unconditionally. The Bible is like this. It's truthful. A year ago, uh, during January and February, we went through the book of Joshua. The Bible does not pull any punches. I I kept saying during that whole series, this book is rated NC-17. It's rough. This this event here is sort of a Joshua-like event in the New Testament, I think. And it is challenging. But the Bible can be trusted, I think, because we're not presented with some picture of a perfect life in this world where we know there is sin and treachery and darkness, but rather... We're presented with the reality of brokenness and our desperate need for Jesus. And we are desperate for that need. So here's the big idea. We can fool others, but we can never fool God. That's essentially what Ananias and Sapphira discovered. But of course, it's not that simple. It's not that shallow. Uh, We need to go back, though, and start with the last six verses of chapter 4. Um, there, there's still some verses that we didn't read this morning on purpose because they're the setup verses for chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Luke is very good at his, what we might call, rhetorical devices, setting things up, introducing things, contrasting things. He really is an excellent writer in that regard. So let's go back to verses 32 through 37. They're very similar to. Chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So let's read them. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart. There's that idea of generosity again. One heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. It's interesting that he says that great grace is upon them all, and then he leads right into this story of Ananias and Sapphira. People struggle with that, and rightfully so. We want to try and dig into that a little bit uh, today. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Can you see how Luke's now starting to set up this story of Ananias and Sapphira? And specifically now he talks about Barnabas, who's a fairly major character in the book of Acts. He now introduces Barnabas for the first time. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is what is known as a summary paragraph. Luke likes summary paragraphs in the book of Acts. He, he does an internal review of where he's been and an internal preview of where he's gonna go. Luke, I, I, we teach this in, in public speaking classes. I do in my classes at Paradise Valley Community College and at Fuller Seminary, the internal review and preview. And and people don't like it, but where it's like, well, it's been working for at least 2,100 years. Okay, if you have a better idea, I'd love to hear it. But I think the Spirit was moving through Luke here. But Luke also specifically puts this here to show the juxtaposition between Barnabas and and the rest of the church and Ananias and Sapphira, who were a part of the church. We need to remember that. Like I said, this paragraph has many similarities to chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. But there are a few more helpful points here that I want to cover before we move into uh, 5, 1 through 11. Uh, Again, the concept of a generous or undivided heart is seen again in verse 32, one heart and soul. They had everything in common. And again, I want to remind us that this statement is really more of a statement of attitude than it is mandated practice. It's more a statement of attitude than mandated practice. People still owned things, but they held them loosely. So that if someone was in need, those assets could be sold and people could be helped. One of the challenges of reading narratives like this in the Bible is very often you and I are specifically looking for something to go and do rather than how to think about things. Now certainly the Bible calls us to do things, but the Bible is also trying to help shape our minds and and give us ways to think about things differently. Conrad Gempf, who's a New Testament scholar, he writes this about this paragraph. As in Acts chapter 2, what is important here is not to whom the possessions actually belonged, but rather the believer's attitude toward them. It is clear that the selling of goods had to do with need and was not a formal condition of membership. That's really good to remember when we have a membership class here at Redemption Arcadia. And meeting these needs was not just welfare. There was also the desire to get people back up on their feet and, and, and helping themselves. Let me read you a couple passages out of First and Second Thessalonians where Paul deals with this. First Thessalonians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia." But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, he writes this, and he's more forceful in this paragraph here about this. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because you were not idle when you were with uh, when we were with we were not idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it but with toil and labor we worked day night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you it was not because we do not have that right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. There's tension here because the church is called to help people who are in financial trouble. But we are also called to help them in such a way that they can also, if they're able, if they are able, be able to get back on their feet and and do it themselves. Notice that the center of that is they are willing to work. We're talking the difference between somebody who's just really stuck, and for whatever reason, they can't get to work. They can't find work. And the person who is aggressively and actively not working, and draining the resources of, of others. That's what Paul is talking about, and there is a big difference there. And we need to understand that. Uh, and the church must help those who are really trying to work at this. And that's one of the reasons, I'm, I'm kind of going off script here, but I just want to say that's one of the reasons why we have to be uh, as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves when we deal with somebody who wants resources from the church because there are people who are just going to do this going from church to church to church and they have no intention of ever helping themselves and Paul speaks to that here but this is a community that was recognizing need there is a legitimate need and they were meeting it But in the midst of that, you see in verse 33, the primary ministry of the church. That is to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. We we do our best to meet needs. Yes, we do our best for all sorts of justice and meeting needs and serving and loving. I am all for that. But if we don't do that in the midst of proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are getting only part of the gospel, which is not a gospel at all. It is a false gospel. Jesus and the resurrection are the center and the core of the gospel. And then uh, Luke says that grace fell on them. And and it's important to understand this too. So much in the church. I just heard a lecture um, on Friday from a professor at at Fuller Theological Seminary uh, about this. The church... um, is really good about talking about saving grace, but we're not so good about talking about the rest of grace, which is actually just about as important as the saving grace. It is the grace that gives us power to live now. It is the grace that is transforming us. It is the grace that we are walking out our sanctification is. It is the grace that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 when he says we are in the process of being conformed to the image of God's Son. That takes grace. It's not like God's grace saves us and then we work hard and it's all us thereafter. It is his filling of the Holy Spirit. It is the power of the resurrected Jesus who also leads us and empowers us as we continue to do the work that we're called to do. Without grace, there's really no power or sanctification. And then you get to those last four verses, 34 through 37, specifically about Barnabas. It's just leading up. Luke is loading up now for the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And he says, this is interesting. He says, there is not a needy person among them, Now, it's important to understand that this is actually embedded in the Old Testament Mosaic law, that among God's people, there would not be a needy person among them. In other words, here you go, revolutionary thought, God's people take care of each other. That's what the church is supposed to do. That's what Israel was supposed to do, God's people, even before the nation of Israel, This was in the Mosaic Law, which was before the nation of Israel was even formed. God's people are called to take care of each other. And this is why so many in the church were willing to sell their assets. But we need to be reminded how remarkable it is that they did this. They were never compelled to do this, except by what? The filling of the Holy Spirit. This was all directed by the Holy Spirit. They love Jesus. They're filled with the Spirit. And as a result, they live these exemplary and extraordinary lives. And of course, Luke's penchant for a sneak uh, preview of a a new character that he's introducing. He does this with Saul as well uh, later on. He'll throw you a new character and then he'll pull back and then he'll give you the completeness of that character later. He's doing that with Barnabas. All right, let's reread 1 through 11 and dig into that story and then get to our points of application for today. You you can tell us if it's only part. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened... And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things." This is a wonderful passage for Fundraising Sunday, amen? It's not Fundraising Sunday, don't worry. Now it's clear from verse 2 that Ananias and Sapphira plotted this together and they did it beforehand. This was contrived, uh, this is premeditated, and and the question is why, why? It's really pretty simple, personal glory. That's what this is about. That they are more interested in impressing other people than they are living for God. This is Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 8, when Jesus looks at Peter, who now gets this by the way, and he says, Peter, you're more interested in the accolades of man than you are of doing what's right for God, living for God. It's, it's basically as simple as that. It's about their glory rather than God's glory. What they're trying to do is they're trying to have both. And that's a problem, that's a divided heart. Well, God can have his glory, but I'm going to sneak some in there for myself, too. That's what they're doing here. They wish to appear as though they're only living for God, though. And that's where it's hypocrisy, because they kept some back. And the irony, of course, is that they and we also, we can fool others, but we can't fool God. And and, and notice, there's a lot in verses 3 and 4. A very important reminder in verses 3 and 4. Tiny little side trip, but it's perfect to be able to bring this up at this point. The Holy Spirit is God. Why have you contrived this in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Ananias, you have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. The Holy Spirit is not some second-class Trinitarian being. The Holy Spirit is God, equal part of the Trinity. We need to remember that. And then verses 3 and 4 are just all about all about this divided heart. Why has Satan filled your heart? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Because their hearts are divided by sin and Satan. Their heart is pulled both by the desire for worldly acclaim and for godliness. This is really hard. Those things really cannot coexist, but virtually every one of us thinks that we're the exception to that. Jesus even taught this. You cannot serve both God and worldly stuff. That's what he said. Jesus is teaching this. But like us, Ananias and Sapphira really believe we're the exception we've got it figured out. We can do both. We can can have our cake and eat it too. We can have our glory here. We can have God's glory later on. Their heart is divided. And let me just say this. Speaking autobiographically too, a divided heart makes bad decisions and foolish mistakes. A divided heart makes bad decisions and foolish mistakes. A divided heart practices hypocrisy. By the way, let's just make sure we know there's hypocrisy outside of the church too. Everyone is a hypocrite. No one can live up to whatever moral code it is that they have for themselves. No one. Even the ones they make for themselves. That's why it's always a kind of a shifting shadow. And that word kept back, they kept back part of the proceeds, literally in the Greek it means dishonestly reserved for self. So it's not just an innocent or passive keeping back, it was an active dishonest act. Verses 3 and 4 also make it clear that the problem was not that they kept back some of the money. That was fine. But the problem was that they lied about it. They misrepresented it. They're presenting the money as if it's the entire proceeds. So the church is not mandating the sale of personal property or the giving of the entire proceeds. Peter specifically says, this is your property and even if you sell it the proceeds are yours to do what you want with them. And so this is really key for us. Straining for personal glory may occasionally work out. Sometimes it works out for us, but ultimately it'll cause our downfall. Scripture is filled with these types of sayings. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride leads to destruction. There is a way that seems right to us, but in the end it will destroy us. We need to submit our will to God's will. And, and verse five, there you go. Ananias fell down dead. He breathed his last. This is admittedly a very severe consequence, but it wasn't Peter's idea. We need to understand Peter wasn't orchestrating this, he's just observing it like the others. And the people there were astonished. The great fear, that's okay. Thank you, Luke, for acknowledging that. That was a little bit strange that that happened, okay? Uh, I think this is interesting. This is one of the most difficult passages. to. There, there are probably people in here who are brand new to the church, and it's like, see, I knew the church was filled with stuff like this, you know? So, or maybe you've never even been in a church before, and it's like, wow, this is ooh, a little scary. This ain't Oprah, I'll tell you right now. This is not what's going on there, okay? And so I know I've had conversations, people get really worked up about this, about the severity of the events, and, and I understand that, I, I, I get that. But, it, but I want you to think about this, as we get worked up, we rarely consider what it was like for their, those who were standing there and saw it happen. We, we don't ever put ourselves in, in their place, we just read about it, they witnessed it, they lived it, it's pretty Amazing. And still, it didn't dampen in any way their enthusiasm for the gospel. The church continued to grow and to serve. Isn't that remarkable? And then verse 6, I want you to just hang on to your indignation here. Because what I'm about to tell you might surprise some of you. There are a number of scholars, commentators, who speculate that this was not the first or the last time that this happened. Why would that be? they say it's because of the almost casual way that Luke describes the young men coming in and wrapping up the body and taking the body away. Just very, okay, so the young men came in. The ushers came in. Okay. One, one commentator said, was speculating, is, was this an office of the early church, you know? Pastor, elder, deacon, dude who carries out the bodies. You know? So here you go. Think about this now. Again, we have people who pine for the axe church. I just want, I just want our church to be like the axe church, to have the power of the axe church. Okay, so many wonderful miracles. (laughs) Well, there's also this miracle too. Okay. Here's a question that, that I wrestle. I mean, I wrestle with this. Are we ready to live as holy as the Acts Church did? We pine for all this power and all this greatness. Are we ready to live as holy as it seems the Acts Ch- Are we ready for that? Do you understand? Living this holy... It, the more holy we live, here you go, the more disruptive it's going to be. The more challenging it's going to be. If I could just attain that... Holiness, then life would be easy. Mm, there's really an inverse relationship there in this world. That's why we need the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So time passes. Like, and this is probably the plan by Ananias and Sapphira. But again, there's insight as to the fact that, that this was all a scheme because she did not know what it happened. Three hours went by, this happened, and she didn't know. That's interesting in and of itself. I'm thinking if she had found out, she might have changed her story. Okay. And Peter does set her up. Yeah, you can't ignore that. He sets her up. And again, it's not that they lied to Peter or the church leadership. It's that they lied to God and they were trying to steal God's glory. This is not a sin against the Church or against the leadership of the church. This is a sin against God. And Peter tells her, they're going to carry you out just like they carried out your husband. And it's important to see, first of all, this incident, 5 1 through 11, is bracketed in the book of Acts by references to the Holy Spirit's power to unify the church. We see that in chapter 4, verses 31 and 33. We will see that next week in chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. This story is bracketed by the Holy Spirit's power to unify the church. Luke wants us to see this contrast because he wants us to understand the reality of this challenge, that even believers wrestle with these things, and the contrast of generosity and hypocrisy. This act of deceit is a threat to the unity of the community, and so it is especially reprehensible. And second of all, Peter is not inflicting this judgment, just as it wasn't his power who healed the lame guy in chapter 3. This wasn't Peter who decided this. It wasn't Peter who did this. He's simply, like I said a long time ago, he's just the play-by-play announcer, essentially. But then what do we do with verse 11? Verse 11, the young man rose, oh, I'm sorry, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Well, yeah. I think our posture toward God should be one of reverence for his power, his majesty, and his sovereignty, and it should be one that respects his displeasure for sin. But here's something else, and this I know, I've already been talking to people about this, and I know this is going to cause some tension so this is at least two weeks in a row that I've really caught it's, it's exciting for me, okay? Listen to this. There's really no clear indication. People assume that Ananias and Sapphira are not believers. There's no indication in the text that they're not believers. They're believers. In fact, the indication is that they're part of the church. They're part of the church. People say, oh, they're, they're obviously destined for hell. They're unbelievers. I don't think so. My supposition, I can't prove it conclusively, but my supposition is that when I get to heaven, I'm going to see Ananias and Sapphira there, along with Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe they'll be together, okay? The first person I'm going to look for, by the way, in heaven is Nebuchadnezzar. I think he'd be really interesting to talk to. You and I need to remember that you and I still sin after we're saved, right? Right? Again, maybe just not as publicly as this. And it's really easy to point fingers here and, and forget about us, to, to put the distraction on, on, on them. We commit sin after we are saved, and yet you and I are as sure of heaven as those who are already there, and we know that because of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's really good news. And that's where our hope lies. There's no condemnation. In the book of Ephesians, there's two or three places where Paul makes the point that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit once we come to Christ. We're sealed. And nothing can break that seal. Here you go. This is not about God removing unbelievers from the church. But about God removing believers from the church who would harm the church in a particularly disastrous way. This was a case of church discipline that was done by the Father himself, not the elders of the church. So four things I I would suggest we could take away about this passage. First of all, this is a sign and a wonder. It is a miracle. It's just a little bit more sobering than the ones we like to read about in Scripture. We, we rarely class... I don't, I don't hear anybody, when they start talking about the miracles of God, we never talk about this one. We never bring this one up. It's like, it's like the person who says, I love all the promises of God, that little book that's, that, that, that little, looks like a Bible, and it's the promises of God, and you begin to read it, and you, you figure, oh, my life's going to be perfect now. I know Jesus. But not contained in that book is John 16, where Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. That's a promise of God too. It's not in that book. Very interesting. God intervenes. You understand? God intervened here. And without his intervention, this wouldn't have happened, and therefore it is a miracle. And he intervenes in order to bring about something good, the cleansing and purification of the church, and to remind the believers who's really in charge. Oh my goodness! It's so easy to get into ministry and think we're in charge. It really is. And I'll tell you, there are times. I, I, thankfully, it has not been too terribly public. But I can tell you stories about when God has humbled me, and He's reminded me, you, "You're just not, here." You go. Say hello to Marcy Moberg. Okay, she'll keep you in line. Okay. Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author, he writes about this, and he says. What if this didn't happen and Ananias and Sapphira eventually rose to leadership in the church and they had to live in in that tension of knowing what they had done, knowing what hypocrites they are at this level, and, and and knowing that they could get exposed for this later on and how much more damage it could cause the church if this gets exposed later on. Okay. Again, this is hard. This is hard. I really believe this is an act of God's mercy, not only on the church, but on Ananias and Sapphira. This this was not done by God out of anger. I believe it was done out of mercy for the church and for Ananias and Sapphira. And if they're believers, <laughs> they got to go and be with Jesus right then. That was it. If that's not merciful, I don't know what is. In the midst of this sin, he says, okay, for the good of the church, but also you guys get to come now and be with Jesus. Now, here you go. I am not prescribing you to go out and sin ruthlessly so that God might take you there right now. That's not the point of this. I just want you to really wrestle with the fact that these are probably believers and that this was an act of mercy by God. And the church today experiences cleansing and purification when sin is exposed and dealt with. And I would argue that generally it's better to do that early rather than later. Because later just makes it worse. And it's not a bad thing, here you go, because there is gospel, there is good news. That's why it's not a bad thing. What's bad, here you go, what's bad is when a sinner experiences no discipline. That could mean that God has done what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. He's taken his hands off. He's not trying to get your attention anymore. I'm talking about unbelievers now. He's not trying to get your attention anymore. You you have faithfully said, I'm going to do it my way. And God, God finally says, all right, have it your way. Go ahead. And, I, and I'll tell you, you, you you know, it's, it's funny, for, for those of us who are Christians and we're like, yeah, but I've done some pretty raunchy things and it hasn't, been, it hasn't come to light and I feel like I've kind of gotten away with it. But you have angst and stress about it, don't you? Isn't it possible that that angst and stress is a form of God's discipline? And again, I would be a little bit worried if you were able to do things and, and, and feel like it's okay. I have people come to me quite often, again, as a pastor, who say, I don't don't know if I'm really saved because I I continue in sin um, in certain ways and, and it's really bothering me. Okay, the thing that would worry me is if it's not bothering you. I think that's an indication that there is salvation there, that God is working with you, that the Holy Spirit and your flesh are struggling, and I think that's good news. I know this is hard stuff, man. I'm making you think this morning. Here's the second thing. Ah, this is another foretaste of the new uh, of the New Jerusalem, and actually a really good one. This event is a foretaste of the New Jerusalem. It reminds us that where we as Christians are headed is a place where there is no hypocrisy, there is no deception. There is no pretense. There is no pride. There is no ego. There are no divided hearts. The New Jerusalem is a place where all barriers for wholeness in life have been removed. I think that's cause for hope, joy, gratitude, and celebration. And, and so does Scripture because that's the way Scripture presents it. Here's number three. We can re- I think we can relax. Relax. This does not mean that all hypocrites will drop dead. And I know some of you are going to email me and go, why did you keep saying drop dead? Because that's what happened. (laughs) Can't you say it nicer? I I don't know. They tripped. They're dead. But it doesn't mean that all hypocrites in the church would drop dead. What if all hypocrites in the church drop dead? (laughs) Wow. Okay, this building for nothing. Okay, got it. And, and here you go. Now, I know this is hard, too, because we, now we've got to talk about, well, what about the selective nature of what God does in, in the, the world? You can't miss it. I know all of us struggle with this. There's a selective nature about how God works in this world, isn't there? Not, not everybody has a wonderful miracle happen to them. Not everybody gets, uh, um, gets to drop dead after they sin this whole thing is very selective. There's a passage in John chapter 5, first 18 verses or so. Uh, Jesus is going into the temple and there's a guy laying there on a mat because he's he's crippled, he's lame. He's just like the guy in Acts chapter 3. He's been there for 38 years. And the scripture specifically says he's laying there in the midst of many others who were ill, infirmed, could not walk, had severe physical challenges. Scripture is very clear that he's just one among many. Jesus walks up to this one guy and says, Do you want to be healed? Take up your mat and walk, and he's healed. Very selective. Why? Why? And then we think about there's a lot worse sin, and by the way, there's much worse sin in the Bible that seems to be overlooked by God, right? At least temporarily, some people call this his extended patience. But his patience is not infinite. And in a sense, maybe lesser sin was punished more harshly. Do you ever think about that? Okay, compare. Here you go, Adam and Eve. They ate a a piece of fruit, and they screwed it up for everybody for the rest of time. Okay? They got these curses. they They were eating healthy okay? If there was kale there, they would have eaten that. Okay. You understand? And, and yet, they, they messed it up for everybody. And by the way, does anybody see the interesting parallel between Adam and Eve and Ananias and Sapphira? At least in part and maybe in whole, what inspired both of them to do what they did was because they wanted the glory of God. In Genesis 3, Satan tells Eve, and Adam was standing there too, if you eat the fruit, you're going to become like God. That was the inspiration. And here, Ananias and Sapphira wanted glory. While we may not drop dead because of hypocrisy, I think it's fair to say that this passage does demonstrate just how destructive hypocrisy is to the church And that it dishonors God. And I understand, here you go. Hypocrisy is not necessarily failure. Hypocrisy is not the unforgivable sin. We can recover from this because of the gospel. And we can recover from any sin because of the gospel. There's one unforgivable sin don't believe. That's it. But it can be fatal. It's not failure, but it can be fatal. When we pretend to be something we are not, especially to gain the accolades of human beings or to steal glory from God, it disrupts conscience, it disrupts community, and it disrupts reputation of the church, of God, and of the gospel. So God will deal with hypocrisy. And by the way, he's got other tools in his bag. So he he might deal with it in a different way. And one of the ways that he'll deal with it, I think, is through community and relationship and discipleship in the church. Much less harsh than what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, with all of us pushing and pulling together. That's one way he deals with this. Here's what it is. It's called grace. It's called grace. And that leads into this fourth takeaway, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, We're all in this boat of sinners, and Jesus is pulling us out by his sacrifice and his resurrected life. And here's the gospel. Sin will be judged, and people will be healed. There's both good news and bad news. There has to be bad news for there to be good news. Sin will be judged, and people will be healed. Jesus has all power to judge sin. He has all power to heal. He has all power to give life. But the most important way that he does that is eternally. That's why he's selective here in this world. He's not selective eternally. All sin will be judged. And some people will be healed. But they will be healed permanently. Eternally. And the sin of the believer. Here's the really good news. The sin of the believer in Jesus the one who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that sin has already been judged at the cross. It's already been judged. And here's what's really mind-boggling. Even the sin you haven't committed yet, already judged, already forgiven. Ooh, cool, I'm going to have a great afternoon. Mm. The Holy Spirit's going to hold you back, I guarantee you. It is by Jesus' stripes that we are healed. It's by his shed blood. It's by his sacrifice we are healed. That is really good. And I'm just going to ask you as directly as I've ever asked you. Those of you that are here today and, and you've never crossed that line. Maybe the Spirit's moving in your heart right now and you've decided this is it. God is doing something in my life. And I want him to transform not only my mind in order to think correctly about things and think with wisdom. But I want him to transform my heart to be a believer and to know that I'm redeemed, to know that I'm a new creation, to know that I have a new life, to know that my future, my eternity is secure. We're going to We're going to go into our time of reflection now and we're going to have elders and deacons in the wings. If you want to talk with somebody about that further or pray with somebody, we would love to talk to you about that. I know it doesn't necessarily feel like it, but it's really the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. It's the most important one I ever made. I made it when I was 27 years old. One A would be marrying Jackie, but still, the gospel is the most important We're also going to sing a couple more songs as as Cody and the band lead us. We're going to take communion together. If the communion servers would please come forward. If you've come prepared to give, we'll have the giving boxes in the back ready for that. You can also give online. And and I just want to remind you, this time of communion, um, this this is a time when believers in Christ come and share at what's known as the Lord's table the bread that represents the broken body of Jesus, the the wine or the grape juice that represents the, the blood that forgives us. And, and we do this to proclaim his death until he comes again, because there's a promise that he's coming again, and he is coming again. And we do this together to proclaim that. And, and if you're not a believer yet, again, it's okay to stay where you are. And there's absolutely no shame in that we don't want you to violate your conscience but i will also say if you've never taken communion before and you've never believed in jesus before and you're believing now this might be a great time because it could be your first communion to come down this aisle and to and to take the bread jesus body and dip it into the wine or the or the grape juice let me pray and then cody's gonna lead us for the rest of our time lord god we we thank you for your word and its truth and the fact that it does not hold back and uh, I know that creates challenges and tension but uh, God by the power of the Holy Spirit you will pull us into rising to that occasion so help us to do that God we love you we thank you for saving us we pray this in Jesus name amen